0: Al Jazeera podcasts.
1: Tension is spiking in the Middle East, following a series of events happening back to back. (laughs) Beirut came to a standstill on Thursday for the funeral of senior Hamas leader Saleh al-Aruri. He was killed by a drone strike this week. Israel has been widely blamed for the attack, but hasn't acknowledged responsibility. Hamas's ally in Lebanon, Hezbollah, promised an answer. This was its secretary general, Hassan Nasrallah, on Wednesday. This serious crime won't go without a response and punishment. Also on Wednesday, the day after the drone strike, there were explosions in Iran.
0: We're getting word that two blasts struck
1: near the grave of the Iranian military commander, the late Iranian military commander Qasem Soleimani. And down in Yemen, Houthi fighters, who stand with the Palestinians, continue to attack ships in the Red Sea they claim are linked to Israel. The Houthis, along with Hezbollah and Hamas, are backed by Iran— the Iranian Navy has deployed a warship to the Red Sea. This movement comes just a few days after the U.S. military sank three boats belonging to the Houthis. All of that in just the first week of 2024. So today, we're breaking down the state of play in the region and asking what's at stake. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To take us through 2024's busy first week, we reached out to an expert on the Middle East based in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
0: My name is Rami Khouri. I'm the Distinguished Public Policy Fellow at the American University of Beirut. So Rami,
1: it is very good to have you back on to help us make sense of all that's been happening. And it has been an eventful first few days of this new year. So let's start with what happened in Lebanon this week. The assassination of Hamas senior leader, Saleh al-Aruri, in a drone strike in a southern suburb of Beirut on Tuesday. First of all, who was al-Aruri? And what do we know so far?
0: Saleh al-Aruri was a very senior, respected, and impactful uh, Hamas person. He was very instrumental in Hamas' relations with Hezbollah uh, and with Iran. Uh, highly respected. He, he worked uh, early in his life in the West Bank where he lived. Then he was expelled, imprisoned and expelled by the Israelis, and he ended up in Beirut. So it's a it's a big loss, but only temporary because Hamas is set up to anticipate these kinds of things, which happen regularly, and they have people ready to fill in his spot.
1: Israel has not claimed responsibility for the attack, but at least the U.S. Central Command has said that this was an Israeli strike, and it is widely believed to be an Israeli strike. When you heard about the attack, when you heard about this strike, were you surprised?
0: Uh, No, I wasn't surprised. These things uh, have been happening regularly. What I'm surprised at is the inability of the Israelis, who are generally pretty smart people, to understand that this kind of tactic doesn't serve them Because every time leaders are killed, they've all been replaced by people who are more militant, more effective, and more able to uh, push the agenda of Hamas and the the Palestinian people as a whole.
1: One of the things that made this particularly tense and has people on edge is because this is a drone attack that happened on Lebanese territory targeting a Hamas leader. Hezbollah in Lebanon promised to respond— Where do those promises stand?
0: This is also a recurring phenomenon. Hamas, Hezbollah, others have had their leaders assassinated years ago. And there's always a response. But the response comes at a time when the people doing the responding feel is the the most appropriate time with the most appropriate uh, targets. This is a war. It's been going on between Hamas and Israel for, well, about 25 years or so. It's been going on between Zionism and Palestinian Arabism for for about 100 years. And we've got to get out of the cycle eventually, but for the moment, this is what's happening and we should anticipate it.
1: You mentioned the cycle. Responses necessitate further responses. So... You are a public policy fellow at American University of Beirut. You have contacts there. You have friends there. How are people there feeling about what might be to
0: come? Well, there's always a stress and tension when this happens. And, and you know, for the 18 years i lived in Beirut, we always uh, had to kind of hold our breath after something like this happens. Um, what people are worried about is just an all-out war. The last one was in 2006, and that's what the Lebanese want to try to avoid and, and Hezbollah uh, too, and I think so do the Israelis.
1: Let's talk about where things were before the assassination of Al-Aruri. Hamas was engaged in indirect negotiations with Israel to reach a deal on a temporary ceasefire, in which Hamas would release a number of Israeli captives in exchange for Palestinians held in Israeli prisons. But this seems like it changes things. Where does this assassination leave the situation in Gaza?
0: I think it means there'll be a pause in the negotiations, but it'll be a temporary pause, probably a week or two. And then the Israelis will probably keep doing their bombings and ethnic cleansing and genocidal actions. And the uh, Hamas um, will keep resisting in any way they can, which is mainly by fighting Uh, on the ground, repelling the uh, Israeli soldiers. uh, This is going to go on for a while, and uh, eventually they'll have to resume their negotiations.
1: After the break, tensions extend beyond Palestine and Lebanon. We'll talk about where the region's headed. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day, with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So Rami, let's talk about something else that happened in this very eventful week, and that was in Iran, a day after the assassination of Al-Aruri. Around 100 people were killed in two bomb explosions near the tomb of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Crowds were gathered there to mark the anniversary of his assassination by the U.S. The Islamic State group have accepted responsibility for those attacks. They claim that they were the ones who caused that deadly twin blast. What do you think of the timing and the target of those bombings?
0: It's not routine, but it's not a big surprise. And it won't have any impact because they're not really hitting the leadership uh, of the the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards. In fact, when they killed uh, General Soleimani, the process that he was leading, the coordination with all of these different groups around the uh, Arab world that Hamas and Hezbollah and others went faster and faster and had more impact, as we saw in, uh, in Gaza. Can
1: you give me a little bit more about that? Because that was called, that coalition, if you will, was called the Axis of Resistance. Explain what that meant.
0: Yeah, starting about 30 years ago, the group of countries and movements in the Arab region called themselves the Resistance and Deterrence Front. Now they just call themselves the Axis of Resistance. And they resist against Israeli colonization and israeli crimes and policies and they also resist against the united states and western imperial powers who try to push people around in the region it used to be the british mo- mostly now it's the americans as well uh, but they basically work together this is a, a really really significant development where you have hezbollah in lebanon hamas in palestine and Sadrullah, the his in Yemen, and then smaller groups in syria and uh, iraq All of them supported by Iran helped helped trade them, supply them. And most importantly, they now coordinate together. And we've seen this uh, in the last couple of weeks. And this is something really significant whose full impact will be seen in the years ahead. Well, let's
1: talk a little bit more about that apparent coordination, because the Red Sea is another hotspot in the middle of these rising tensions. You have Yemen's Houthi fighters, in support of Palestine, attacking ships bound from and to Israel. You have the U.S. responding. U.S. helicopters have sunk three small Houthi boats in the Southern Red Sea as the Yemeni group attempts to pressure Israel into ending the war. And a statement released on Wednesday from 12 countries, including the U.S., warning the Houthis against further attacks. That follows Iran's decision to send a warship there on Monday. Where does that leave the security situation in the region?
0: This issue of military forces and movements and confrontations uh, really defines the modern um, uh, region, the modern Arab world, but the wider region as well. And we've actually had foreign military groups actively engaged in warfare or military action since Napoleon, <laughs> you know, 230 years ago. <laughs> and it's not, nonstop. So this is the latest example of this. What's significant and new here is that the Ansarullah in uh, Yemen are doing this based on the capabilities that they have developed through their links with Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran, and in support of uh, the people of, of, of Gaza, to counter the Israelis. Those are the new dynamics that are really important. And now the Americans are trying the the usual approach they've tried since the 1950s, uh, mostly without success, is to try to create coalitions of Arabs and Israelis and Americans and Western forces to counter the bad guys in the region. In this case, they see uh, Hamas as the bad guy, or Iran as the bad guy before we used to be the communists, or Qaeda, or uh, Abdel Nasser, or Saddam Hussein. You can't get a coalition of Arab people with Israel and the U.S. against Palestine. It's just completely out of the question. And the Americans are not sensible enough to understand this, and they keep making the same mistake.
1: You mentioned Ansarullah, and so just for our listeners, that is what the Houthi movement is officially known as. That is their name in Yemen. Have you seen the joint statement from the governments of the U.S., Australia, Bahrain, Belgium?
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: What did you make of it? Because a lot of the conversation that I'm seeing online when it comes to this response from these 12 nations against the Houthis' attacks on shipping vessels is that these nations seem like they care more about shipping containers than they do what is happening in Gaza.
0: Yes, well, this is the reality, and it's so clear now. Um, You know, when you have the American president sitting in the Israeli war room, there's no more indicator, no better indicator than that of where American priorities are. They're basically supporting whatever Israel thinks it needs to do for its own security. Uh, And if this means genocidal actions in, in Gaza, the West is willing to acquiesce and even be accomplices I don't think the statements by any Western leaders have any credibility around 80% of the world. I would think the global South uh, totally discounts what the U.S. says and looks at what it does. Unfortunately, this is a terrible uh, situation, and the implications of this could be very profound because American politicians find that the support they get from Israel for their elections, for their uh, uh, relations, for their whatever, uh, if they find that Israeli support is more important than the rule of law and human rights, this is a big problem because it means that uh, we're going to go back uh, to the jungle in one form or, or another.
1: Does any of this, all that we've been talking about, the events of just this one week, Does any of it bring us closer to seeing an end to Israel's war on Gaza and the situation faced by Palestinians there and in the occupied West Bank? Or are we just closer to the brink of wider violence and instability?
0: It's hard to tell, really. These are unprecedented times and unprecedented actions. I mean, what the Israelis were doing is unprecedented. What Hamas did was unprecedented. What the Americans on the West are doing are, is unprecedented. We've never reached this point before, so we don't know how it's going to play out. We may have some areas uh, of some hope. One of them is the fact that, and this is ironic maybe, but the, the strength of this uh, resistance axis, the ability of these groups to kind of check the Israeli and American Militarism and possibly bring about a ceasefire and exchange of prisoners and hostages, and then possibly, you know, move on later uh, to a uh, negotiation about the underlying issues between Israelis and Palestinians. I wouldn't uh, rule it out, and of course, already we've seen uh, Netanyahu and the Israelis uh, do things that they said they'd never do. Already, they're sending pilots and soldiers. Netanyahu said he'd never have a ceasefire, he'd never negotiate. But he's done all the things that he said he never would do because he's confronted with a military situation which is bad for him.
1: Finally, Rami, so much has happened over this past week, but what might be just as notable is what hasn't happened and which countries we haven't heard from. What do you make of that calculus?
0: One of the things that really strikes me is how little public support has come from the Arab governments. It's not surprising, maybe, because most Arab countries depend on the U.S. and Western countries for uh, support for basic survival, to pay the salaries of their uh, government employees and army and feed their people, etc. So it's not surprising, but it's really quite sad that the Arab countries, after a century of trying to develop sovereign states have actually found themselves in a situation of de-sovereignization, that they don't have the power to take sovereign decisions in the benefit of their own people or the Palestinian people.
1: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Sari El Khalili and Ishish Malhotra with Nagin Oliayi, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Khaled Sultan, David Enders, Amy Walters, Sonia Bagat, Zainab Badr, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, Alexandra Locke is The Tank's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.